Coming up next is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On tonight's program, Pediatric Integrative Medicine and Rheumatology. I'm a pediatric rheumatologist. We need these conventional medicines to hone down inflammatory conditions. In adding my integrative approach and adding these other tools, patients have um, decreased the amount of conventional medicines they needed. Plus, we take a new look at children's vaccinations. I like to think of vaccines as education for child's immune system, and they do it in a safe and controlled environment. And we examine the relationship between ADHD and autism. The core treatment of autism. It is a social skills training group. That tends to work well for children with autism. It tends to work less well if the child has co-occurring ADHD. That's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we'll get an update on children's vaccinations and what are the essential ones your children need. Plus, we'll take another look at autism and how it relates to mental illness in children. But first, What is integrative medicine for children? And how can techniques such as yoga and aromatherapy work wonders? Integrative medicine services have become very popular in the United States, with more than 70% of Americans using them in some form. And now these services are available for children. We'll hear with more on all of this is Dr. Caitlin Scarlett. She's the assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, specializing in pediatric, pediatric rheumatology and now integrative medicine. Welcome, Dr. Scarlett. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. So let's begin by explaining what we mean when we use the term integrative medicine services. What is that? Integrative medicine is a type of medicine that I consider just good medicine. Um, It's focusing on a healing-oriented medicine that takes into account the whole person when you're treating the person. All factors that influence a patient's health, wellness, and disease are taken into consideration, including body, mind, and spirit, as well as lifestyle and and community. So bottom line is you're trying to use a series of kind of what they call the combination of the best of complementary medicine, which we'll talk a little bit more about, and conventional medicine to treat the whole child. Exactly. It's a marriage of the two types of medicines, um, which we, you know, we call it integrative medicine because it's not just additional medicines complementing the contemporary medicine, but it's using all kinds of tools just to take good care of the patients. Let's talk a little bit about what we call these complementary tools and and give our listeners some idea of what we're talking about. What are the kinds of things that fall under that category of complementary therapies? Sure. Well, all um, appropriate therapies, both conventional and alternative, are used to facilitate the body's innate healing response. And when we talk about integrative medicine, Um, we do encompass um, several different areas that maybe people would consider complementary alternative therapies. These are things such as nutrition, so we focus on diet, sometimes introduce supplements and micronutrients, as well as botanicals. Also mind-body medicine, so examples of this are biofeedback, guided imagery, hypnosis, yoga, tai chi, and forms of meditation and deep relaxation, um, including breath work, which is very important, but also spirituality and medicine, manual medicine, such as massage therapy, chiropractic, physical therapy, and integrative medicine also encompasses whole medicinal systems, such as homeopathy and um, uh, naturopathy. How about something like acupuncture? Absolutely. That's always been kind of, you know, a bugaboo. Is that real medicine or not? Obviously, it's Eastern medicine. So right. does that fit into that same category? It does. And that fits into um, the focus of whole medicinal sim- uh, systems. So acupuncture is a form of traditional Chinese medicine. And um, there have been many studies showing that it can cause a great relief for certain conditions. And it is something that we now refer patients 
to and utilize, um, I do in my practice. Yeah, and as I had said in the introduction, so many Americans today have been utilizing some of these methodologies, whether it be acupuncture, yoga, meditation, breathing issues, you know, all the things, many of these things. But I think what's interesting is now medicine really is embracing, or the field of medicine is embracing these as really a very important components of the entire healing process. Absolutely. And um, as you noted, um, you know, as medicine has moved forward in the past, um, you know, several um, decades, we are witnessing an increase in chronic and largely preventable diseases. And I really think that integrative medicine can really help um, help in kind of um, solving this problem, especially in America. Um, I also want to add that um, integrative medicine neither rejects conventional medicine nor accepts alternative therapies uncritically. And, you know, I've been trained to look at these alternative medicines and see, you know, what, what shows benefit with the evidence out there, there so it's evidence-based, evidence. absolutely. So it's really it's really through a trained physician's eyes that you embrace these kinds of holistic therapies, determine which are truly healing and helpful, and those who may that may not be exactly or and superfluous. That's a very important point to make because not everything that some may consider you know, complementary medicine is good for a patient. So there is now a large body of evidence out there that a trained physician uses when making these decisions. So help us understand a little bit about the kinds of conditions that this kind of approach is helpful for. For example, um, anxiety, arthritis, what are the kinds of things that you see that lend themselves to this kind of comprehensive approach? Well, um, mostly um, I do think that anybody can benefit from an integrative medicine approach. But specifically, there's been an increase in chronic diseases over the past decade, especially in pediatrics. Of course, I'm a pediatric rheumatologist and integrative um, medicine practitioner, but there's been a spike in stress-related disorders in children. And uh, many patients, many children, can be put on medicines that have side effects on developing brains and, and their developing bodies, which... Um, you know, which we don't take lightly. Um, and I do think an integrative approach to many of these conditions um, that are chronic conditions can help, you know, decrease the medicines and, and help heal the patient. So things such as, um, specifically, I take care of patients with inflammatory conditions, so arthritis and lupus, um, they can greatly benefit from an integrative appro approach. But it's not only limited to right. rheumatologic conditions. Patients with diagnoses such as asthma or inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis or even atopic dermatitis there have been you know many published studies that an integrative approach can can help these patients too patients with migraine headaches patients with anxiety disorders um, patients even with general things such as constipation um, you know IBS all of these things can greatly benefit from an integrative approach if you're just joining us you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatric rheumatologist Dr. Caitlin Scarlett and we're talking about integrative medicine services for children so basically these types of approaches have, have been going on or ongoing for adults for quite a long time, but now there's a real push to move all of these wonderful opportunities for complementary care into the world of pediatrics. And you're obviously kind of at the forefront of doing that kind of thing, along with some other centers, and we'll talk about that uh, throughout the country in a minute. But what have you seen as the general benefits of these kinds of treatment? I mean, where you know, what do you see, or what are the therapeutic benefits that you've witnessed or seen? Well, in my own practice, I've seen um, patients that are on. I do have a lot of patients that are on many conventional medicines. I'm a pediatric rheumatologist. We need these conventional medicines to hone down inflammatory conditions. But I've found that um, in adding my integrative approach and adding these other tools, patients have um, decreased the amount of conventional medicines they needed. Not only that, but a lot of times I see the stress level of not only the patient, but the patient family decrease by um, teaching them these tools that they can help aid their healing child. In a With, sense, there's an empowerment. Absolutely. And, and a, a sense of engaging the patient themselves in the process of their own healing. Exactly. And 
once some of these tools are taught and the patients realize that they can add to their healing process, um, it, it makes for a whole different experience for the patient. And I do think that that itself also lends to the healing process, which is wonderful. So one of the things I, I came across which I thought was in, really interesting is that even in the world of children, we see things like decreased pain, which you've alluded to, even improved sleep. They've they found that there can be an enhanced immune function as well, which to me was striking. Absolutely. And of course, less, less anxiety and depression overall. Yes, the stress reduction, anxiety, reduction, pain reduction um, greatly lends to the healing process. So now you alluded to the factor you mentioned and I mentioned that you are a pediatric rheumatologist by training. Right. First, help us understand what that means, what your training is, the kinds of disease entities you see, and then how all of this kind of works together with integrative medicine. Of course. Well, I'm a pediatric rheumatologist. I did a pediatric residency and then I went and got specialized training in uh, pediatric rheumatology through a fellowship. And what pediatric rheumatology is, um, it's a specialist who um, hones in on in the detection and diagnosis uh, as well as treatment of musculoskeletal diseases in children as well as systemic autoimmune conditions commonly referred to as rheumatic diseases. So give me some examples. I know that the classic thing is rheumatoid arthritis. Exactly. So there's um, a, the pediatric form of um, what we consider adult rheumatoid arthritis is called juvenile idiopathic arthritis. It's an inflammatory condition in children and a chronic disease as well. And that is probably the number one inflammatory condition that I see and treat. But we also have other autoimmune diseases that we see and treat in our patients, such as lupus, um, different mixed connective tissue diseases, um, something called dermatomyositis, um, things such as that, inflammatory tendinitis. We also see non-inflammatory conditions. So uh, we often see patients with pain that it does not have an inflammatory cause, and we still treat and follow those patients. And that's actually how I got interested in integrative medicine. When I was doing my fellowship, you know, we had a lot of these patients with inflammatory as well as non-inflammatory diseases, and I found that introducing alternative therapies, um, these integrative therapies such as yoga, um, dietary changes, focusing on an anti-inflammatory diet, and uh, general wellness helped not only not only my patients with the inflammatory conditions, but also and often my patients with the non-inflammatory conditions. What strikes me as interesting here is that a lot of the disease entities that you've described, especially the inflammatory ones, have an autoimmune component, meaning the body's own immune system in some ways is reacting to itself. Exactly. So it strikes me as interesting that some of these uh, not conventional, complementary therapies in a sense empower the patient to somehow reverse those that experience on some level. Correct. And that's very, and, and it would be so, remarkable. It is remarkable. It truly is. And it's interesting. And it, it to me, it likens to this idea of getting the body's immune system to help fight cancer or something. It's somehow putting it back into some balance in this case. Right. Almost getting it back into check. Balancing. Give us an example in the little bit of time we have left of, of a case that you may have come upon that where you've seen the effects of using these kind of complementary therapies in terms of really both helping in the treatment but also minimizing the, the need for heavy drugs, which also carry a lot of side effects. Well, a good um, example is um, a patient, and I've had one um, recently that's come to me with um, what seemed to be a new diagnosis of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Of course, that diagnosis does take some time to make. Um, and I used my, you know, traditional approach where I use my conventional therapies, but also, you know, had a conversation with the patient and the family regarding other, you know, integrative therapies, such as, as I just noted, focusing on an anti-inflammatory diet, increasing different things in the diet, specifically turmeric, which is a wonderful anti-inflammatory, has a wonderful anti-inflammatory component as well as cinnamon and ginger. Um, also starting an exercise routine and focusing on stretching, core strengthening, st joint stabilization. And this patient um, that I'm speak of, speaking of in particular took up yoga on a regular basis. I also sent them to um, some counseling where they did a lot of visual imagery um, to help when, you know, um, 
his joints were acting up and causing a lot of pain. And all of these things um, together helped me take this specific patient off of the conventional therapies wow. a lot quicker than I generally see with my patients. Now, I do use this integrative approach with a lot of my uh, rheumatology patients. Um, you know, not everybody, you know, will do all of the things, but um, this patient in, in particular did adhere to all of these things, and um, we had a wonderful outcome. Well, thank you so much for helping share this. Now, it's obviously has taken place in other places in the country, and now you've started a, a whole program here at the Golisano Children's Hospital. Yes, I'm very excited excited about it. We've created um, a new division, a division of pediatric rheumatology and integrative medicine, and um, I'm not only going to be seeing my pediatric rheumatology patients, but I'm also going to see integrative patients um, that don't have rheumatologic conditions that have other musculoskeletal complaints. And um, I'm very excited about it. I recently finished a fellowship through the University of Arizona's Medical Center, um, their Center for Integrative Medicine. Uh, it was, it's a program that was started by Dr. Dr. Andrew Weil, who you yes, know is one of the four well founders known. of this integrative movement. And um, I recently completed that, and um, I'm very excited to bring these services to upstate New York and to the Golisano Children's Hospital. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing all of that with us. We're very excited that you're doing it. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Caitlin Scarlett, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics uh, at Upstate Medical University, specializing in pediatric rheumatology and integrative medicine. Next up, children's vaccinations, what you need to know. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, with all the controversy swirling around childhood vaccinations and the recent outbreaks of measles and whooping cough throughout the United States, questions still remain as to the necessity and efficacy of these life-saving shots. We'll hear with more on all of this is Dr. Yana Shaw. She's Associate Professor of Pediatrics specializing in infectious diseases at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Thanks so much for coming in. Hello, Linda. Good to be here. So let's begin with some tough questions. I'm going to give you some tough questions about these vaccinations because this is a lot on a lot of people's minds. Why do we give them? What are they and why do we give them? Well, vaccines, I like to think of vaccines as education for child's immune system, right? Every day we send children to school so they can learn and they are prepared once they come out for life. Vaccines do just the same, and they do it in a safe and controlled environment. They educate your immune system when the child sees the wild infection. So what they do, they essentially train the immune cells that are then prepared to fight the infections in the in, in, in wild. So is natural immunity, which, which can occur if you become exposed to a disease, better than a vaccination? Well, not necessarily. We know that in even natural immunity, after some infections, such as pertussis, for example, wanes over time, and children can get reinfected. Uh, the danger of that concept of thinking that natural immunity is better than vaccination is that you don't know which child will have just a mild case of measles or pertussis, and which child will have actually serious complications from that infection, um, or die. If we could predict which children will die from wild infections, we could maybe focus just on those and vaccinate them. The problem is we don't. So when you use the term wild infections, you mean naturally occurring infections, what's out there in the real world. Correct. I mean, I, I read somewhere, for example, that a, a natural polio infection could lead to permanent paralysis. One wouldn't, would never argue that you'd rather have someone contract polio than take the polio vaccine. Absolutely. You know, polio alone is actually an excellent example. Most of the polio infections 
are asymptomatic, which means you don't even know you're infected. Very small proportion of children, however, will develop this very serious com uh, complication, which is paralysis. And you may, uh, you know, especially older listeners may remember the pictures of iron lungs and children paralyzed um, due to polio. Measles does the same. It can cause brain damage. It can cause serious meningitis or pneumonia. So vaccines in a sense, in many cases, are preferable to allowing you just to be, to be exposed to these natural uh, infections. Vaccines are the safer choice for your child. It offers your child to develop protection without the risk of serious complications. So now the difficult question that you answer all the time very clearly is, do vaccines cause autism? Vaccines do not cause autism. We have looked, we have studied, and we have demonstrated that vaccines are safe and they do not cause autism. And in fact, the research that was purportedly um, propped up as the source of that fact has been debunked as being as basically been a lie. Correct. So in nineteen in late nineteen nineties, Andrew Wakefield published an article in Lancet where he insinuated that measles vaccine causes autism. Since then, that research has been debunked. It has not been his findings have not been supported by um, research by other scientists. Um, However, we still struggle with the consequences of, of, of those is, findings. It's still a public, uh, kind of a public health battle in a sense. Um, are the vaccine side effects dangerous? So vaccines are extremely safe. There are some dangerous side effects that one can experience from vaccines. And one of them, for example, is anaphylaxis. Some children, and we again don't know which one they might be, may develop severe allergic reaction to the vaccine. Um, so that occurs, but that happens in less than one, 200,000 children. So it's very, very uncommon. Other common side effects um, um, that we do see after vaccination include redness, pain, uh, swelling at the site of injection, and fever. Maybe a low-grade fever. And low-grade fever. But that, that, that anaphylaxis is a very rare occurrence. That's very rare. Um, and again, if it happens, that typically happens at the, at the physician's office, and um, uh, that can be um, treated with medications that are routinely available at providers' offices. So why are vaccines given so early? Vaccines are given early because we want to protect children when they are most vulnerable, at a time when they don't have opportunity to develop immunity, protection, and where the immune system may not be strong enough to fight the natural infections. Um, we also know that vaccines given at that age are effective, meaning that the baby's child's immune system can develop re uh, protection and um, lasting protection. So it doesn't make sense to postpone vaccinations then? I, I strongly discourage postponement because uh, you are not only uh, delaying the baby's opportunity uh, to be protected at vulnerable age, but there is a coming, um, or there is, there is a recent data suggesting that if you delay, your child may experience a greater side effects from vaccination. So in general, are skipping vaccines or picking and choosing vaccines a good idea? Picking and choosing is, for vaccines, is not a good idea. Um, uh, first, if you pick and choose, you're picking and choosing out of a schedule that has not been tested. Um, we have an immunization schedule that has been extensively tested in trials, and we know that schedule is safe and it works. Uh, if you choose to delay or combine vaccines that uh, may have not been tested together, you're um, rendering potentially your child either vulnerable to those infections or potentially to greater side effects. And what happens if you choose not to vaccinate? Choosing not to vaccinate is a dangerous choice. Um, you're leaving not your only for the child themselves, but it, there's a larger issue here, isn't yes, there? Yes, there is a larger issue, and the larger issue is community and social justice. But the idea is that if a number of people or many people do not vaccinate their children, then the, with this, this concept, what they call herd immunity, which is basically the larger community being protected, allows for the basically outbreak of a lot of these diseases. 
Exactly. And that's what we have seen on uh, numerous times in the history, most recently in the measles outbreak. That outbreak has been started by somebody who was not vaccinated. Uh, we don't know where the person contracted the infection. Um, however, it was propagated by people who where a majority of those people chose not to vaccinate. Um, so the the choice not to vaccinate is a choice not only for your child, but it's a choice you make for the community that you then leave vulnerable um, to these potentially serious and deadly uh, infections. So if you have concerns about this whole vaccination schedule or the ages, what do you recommend? I mean, where do you where do you go? What's the best source of information for a parent? Um, I would encourage parents to talk to your provider, um, ask about what vaccines your child needs, what concerns you have. Um, if you need additional um, information, I would refer you to CDC or Department of Health websites. Uh, they have ample amount of correct um, and tested information, um, often with schedules and, um, and um, questions and answers that are easily available on those, on those sites. But how does someone know what vaccinations their, chi- their child actually needs? I mean, obviously they would speak to their pediatrician or their provider, but... Um is there, I mean, basically, this is changing on an annual basis, the, the, the schedule of vaccinations? So so every January, um, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices um, issues a new immunization schedule or a calendar. So, yes, that's updated as new information arises. Um, schools then, um, or Department of Health makes recommendations to schools um, who then um, adopt um, um, their recommendations. And their requirements. In terms and their of- requirements, that's correct. So in New York State specifically, all children who want to um, attend schools, private or public, have to be properly vaccinated. Uh, we have recently uh, had changes to the school immunization entry requirement. Uh, last year, uh, the school nurses had to carry carefully look at all the intervals between the the doses. Uh, Number of doses alone was not sufficient uh, to meet the school entry requirement, but they had to also check to make sure that the minimal intervals were not breached. This year, uh, the Department of Health recommended that all children who enter kindergarten, for example, receive two doses of MMR. And actually, by the entry, they had to have received two doses of MMR vaccine, chickenpox vaccine. And those are all new recommendations. And they come out from the careful and thoughtful um, uh, investigations and uh, review of um, uh, research data as it comes out. So would you recommend that people not only speak to their provider, but also their pediatric provider, but also perhaps check things like the CDC website or there's another immunization website? Correct. So you could either check the CDC immunization website. You can also also go to New York State Department of Health uh, website. They have a, a tab on immunization, vaccination. The school entry requirement are also available at that website. Uh, school entry requirement are um, uh, specific for state, uh, so you would not find that information on CDC. Uh, but so also, you might go to the New York State Department of, of Health, Health website to see exactly what cur- are the current recommendations are required. That's correct. Or check even with your child's school nurse. She will know really well what's required. So how does somebody keep track of their child's vaccinations? What do you recommend? Um, Ideally, one would have a child's immunization record uh, that um, is updated each time a child receives a new vaccine. Uh, but I'll confess, I'm a mother of three, and I uh, myself don't have that. Um, I lose track. So what I typically do, I go back to my pediatrician and ask them for my child's immunization record, and I try to be better about keeping it um, up to date. Uh, new York State has an immunization registry that now allows parents um, uh, to have an uh, Um, uh, current immunization schedule available for each child. Parents do not have access to the registry, but providers uh, do. So that they can, they could basically share it with the parent. Correct. If needed. So how about if a child, either through illness or through questioning on the part of the parent, misses a vaccine in the normal sequence of vaccines, Mm -hmm. 
What do you recommend? Should they try to catch up? Should they let it lapse? What do they do? So, yes. So if you miss a dose, um, you do not need to restart uh, vaccination from the beginning. You just catch up. So as soon as you're well and you can be vaccinated, call your provider and ask uh, for an appointment for um, vaccination. Um, Labs immunization does not... um, impair uh, the immunity. It does uh, not um, typically uh, result in a greater amount of side effects. So as soon as you're able to get vaccinated, call your provider. Have you noticed in the last, I don't know, five to last decade or so, has there been a lot of change in terms of the recommended schedule for young children? I mean, because the controversy seems to also kind of underscore the fact that many, many more vaccines have been added. Is that your perception? So vaccines have been added to the child's immunization schedule. We added rotavirus vaccine several years ago. Um, Otherwise, um, I'm not aware of many other uh, new vaccines that were entered or added to uh, infant immunization schedule. The school immunizations requirements do change, and they change frequently. But ultimately, they're for the betterment not only of the individual child but of the community. And we can't underscore enough how important it is it is for everybody to get vaccinated. Well, very, very, very helpful information, important information. My guest has been Dr. Yana Shaw, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, specializing in infectious diseases at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. More and less, or bet you don't know. Well, folks, in this checkup from the neck up, for the next 60 ticks, I'm going to tell you things you may already know. But then for the next min-min, we're going to talk about something you definitely don't know that once you know, if you take seriously, would change your life emphatically, dramatically, let's just say psychobiosocially for the positively. Intrigued? Here we go. It that shall not be named explicitly fires mitochondria magnificently, energizes physiology fantastically, benefits breathing beneficently, lowers heartbeats averagerily, increases their ejection fraction mathematically, reduces blood pressure systolically, increases appetite gastronomically, peps pooper process productively while reducing pain and disability categorically, increases joy and happiness consistently, lengthens telomeres tellingly, thus lengthens life most probably, and did I mention more joyfully and happily? Okay, now let's get serious, or as I heard occasionally from my grammar school teachers, let's get down to brass tacks, Mr. (laughs) O'Neill. Whatever that meant, nothing good, I knew. Anyway, if you were paying attention, you probably heard most of what I've said repeatedly, as I did from the teach-teach-teachery. Psychologically, here's where it gets interesting. Ask yourself why, since you know all that good to very good to very, very good stuff above, why aren't you doing what you know would be good to very good to very, very good, Mr. or Ms. Listener? All right, Mr. or Ms. Listener, your homework for this week is to think seriously about what is stopping you from doing it regularly. What? You thought I was going to spoon-feed you the answer? (laughs) I don't know the answer. Only you know your answer. It's your life. I could talk until I'm blue in the face about how it's good for you. But until you give some serious thought to why, you'll never know or be prepared to do what you need to do for your own sake. So think. What's that? Not enough time in your busy day, sorry. You'll have more energy, get more done quicker, be more creative, live years longer, have more time. And take that smirk off your face, Ms. Listener. There's nothing funny about this. It's life and death and you're not immune. So go home and think seriously about this too. And come back prepared to tell me and the whole class what you find out. (laughs) What? It's not fun? 
Well, find something you'd like to do and do that regularly. What? It's too hard. Well, start off easy and add a bit more when you're ready. What's so hard about that? Do I have to do all the thinking around here? Go on, go home. I've had enough of you for one week. I'm Dr. Rich, the sick of telling people of the benefits of exercise, two-minute psychologist O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. autism, and how it relates to mental illness in kids. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, estimates that one in 68 children in multiple communities in the United States has been identified with autism spectrum disorder, also known as ASD. This new estimate is roughly 30% higher than the previous estimates reported in 2012, with only one in 88 children. And with this increase comes new research and speculation regarding the potential for a range of problems that can accompany this diagnosis, and specifically a look at the mental health of these individuals. Well, here to share some of these findings is Dr. Kevin Anschel. He's Associate Professor of Psychology at Syracuse University and Adjunct Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Anschel. Thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's there's been this increase in, in ASD or autism spectrum disorder in this country and also I believe worldwide. Tell us about that. Sure. Yeah, I think I mean I think there has been an increase in the prevalence of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and I think there probably are three reasons to account for that. Number one is better awareness, um, early screening, early detection. Um, in residency programs in pediatrics and child psychiatry, there's a much heavier emphasis on autism than there was 10, 20 years ago, and so the pediatricians of today are much more acutely aware of autism. Number two, I think autism is now defined as a spectrum, um, and as a spectrum, you know, we certainly have the more affected individuals who are completely nonverbal, have intellectual disabilities, but also have individuals who are much mildly affected or much more mildly affected. Um, and it's the mild end of the spectrum uh, that I think has generated the most controversy, um, that I think everyone would agree on the people that are more severely affected as having autism spectrum disorder. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a spectrum disorder, and as a spectrum disorder, uh, there's a wider range. And the number three, educational law, um, that uh, individuals with autism spectrum disorder are eligible for a variety of interventions and accommodations at school. Um, and so where maybe 10, 20 years ago where a parent of a child who was a little quirky, a little socially off, may have been reluctant to pursue an autism spectrum disorder evaluation, I don't think that that reluctance is as strong anymore. So do you think in, in effect we are seeing more autism per se and this whole notion that it's become, it's almost an epidemic proportions and of course all of these theories in terms of what's fueling it, or is it in part the way we're looking at it and the drivers for for help, you know, for intervention, like you mentioned, the fact that you can't secure help unless you have this diagnosis for any kind of um, potential developmental issue? Sure. I think, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I think the clinician in me says it's uh, probably more of the latter, that a drive for health, uh, an interest in treatments, and in order to be able to secure these treatments, at least at school, you need a diagnosis. I think the researcher in me says the former, uh, that I think uh, autism is a genetic disorder. It tends to run very strongly in families. Um, and so an increase in the population who has this condition is going to lead then to further increases so it, in autism. The truth is you think that, well, both are true, but you do think there's, there is a true increase in the incidence of even the more severe aspects of autism. I think there's a true increase. I'm not 
quite sure I believe it's at the proportions that are being displayed publicly. Um, I, so with this increase, there seems to be a lot more interest being generated about the what we call comorbidities or the kind of accompanying um, mental health issues that may accompany something like autism at either end of that spectrum. Tell us about what kinds of issues are being looked at or have been found. Sure. I can tell you that the two most common co-occurring conditions are anxiety and anxiety disorders, especially specific phobias, so a child that has a specific fear uh, of uh, um, something, for example, lightning, thunder, etc. And then also, um, number two, ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Those are the two most common co-occurring. ADHD co-occurs in about half of children on the autism spectrum. Really? So that it's many? A very, it's a very significant uh, proportion. Anxiety disorders is somewhat less, but still very, uh, very common. Roughly 30 to 40 percent of children on the autism spectrum will have an anxiety disorder. Is there any theory as to what underlies those co-occurring um, symptoms or behaviors? Sure, sure. There's a range of theories. Uh, I'm more familiar with the ADHD theories, and in the interest of time, I'll focus really on the ADHD. Uh, uh, the main theory is that both autism and ADHD share a deficit in what's called executive functioning. Executive functioning is an umbrella term that's used to describe a set of abilities that all has one thing in common, and that they act like an executive would in a company. So the ability to organize, the ability to plan, the ability to resist your impulses, the ability to sustain your attention, um, those are all examples of executive functions. And children, adolescents, and adults, for that matter, with ADHD and children, adolescents, and adults with autism, both have deficits in executive functioning. And so that's, I would say, the leading hypothesis about the overlap. But they correlate rather than necessarily that one causes the other. Is that, I mean, is there some suspicion that there may be some underlying etiology or that yeah, one is actually yeah. responsible for the yeah, other? There, there, um, and there are theories on both sides. There are theories that there are correlations, and then there's also theories that there are causations, that the deficits in executive functions are what causes the ADHD symptoms or what causes the autism symptoms. And so there are theories, and at this point in the research between ADHD and autism, we really don't know. Uh, I'm not sure how many of your audience will know, but uh, prior to 2013, um, the DSM-5, which is the nomenclature system we use in psychiatry, um, uh, DSM-5 did not allow a clinician to make an ADHD diagnosis in the context of autism. Because, really? Because it was thought that all children with autism are hyperactive. All children with autism are inattentive, and therefore it couldn't be ADHD, it was just autism. But that changed in the DSM-5, and so... This is a hot area of research because of that change in the past two years. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with psychologist Dr. Kevin Anschel. We're talking about the kinds of psychopathology, specifically ADHD in this case, that can accompany autism spectrum disorder in children and adolescents. So help us understand a little bit more about what these children look like in terms of I know that there are some other psychopathologies that do occur. For example, um, <clears throat> in just in, in, in reviewing for this, I saw things like mood disorders, phobias, when you mentioned anxiety. Um, even childhood schizophrenia and psychosis may also co-occur mm -hmm. with autism. Mm -hmm. um, is that being studied as well in terms of what the etiology is or how these things seem to correlate? Sure. All of, I mean, all of the above you mentioned is being studied. I know the National Institute of Health are very interested in autism, um, and a lot of our grant funding dollars are going towards the study of autism. The co-occurrence of autism and ADHD is a particularly hot area of research just because half of children with autism have uh, ADHD, and so this is a higher prevalence in comorbidities. The schizophrenia, the mood disorders, those tend to be lower in prevalence. So what are the kinds of things that you see? Go, let's go back to what I, my initial question. What do those kids look like? Sure. And how are they different? Let's say a kid with the co-occurring uh, behaviors versus one who has purely got uh, autism spectrum disorder. Or you said 50%. What's the other 50%? Sure. Yep. I would. 
I would say, I mean, I teach psychology, and one of the things I always tell our students is you begin every question with it depends. And in this case, it depends on the intellectual abilities of the individual with autism. About half of people on the autism spectrum have an intellectual disability. And individuals with intellectual disabilities uh, who also have ADHD are much more impaired. Um, so they're, um, for example, they tend to be in specialized classroom settings. They're unable to be mainstreamed into the general education curriculum for many classes, and so they're much more impaired. So what do they look like in terms of their behaviors? Sure. Well, ADHD is a behaviorally defined condition, so they're hyperactive, they're impulsive, they have trouble sitting. Still, uh, kids with autism who are impulsive, um, um, they tend to run out into the street without looking. Uh, I mean, they tend to do things impulsively. For example, a couple weeks ago, a kid with autism that I've been working with clinically uh, was playing Xbox. He got upset at the game. He threw the console at the TV and broke the $1,000 TV. And the, you know, the parents were saying, this is so out of character for him, he usually doesn't do this. Uh, obviously, that's an impulsive thing he didn't mean to do. So again, if, they, if that same child had just simply had autism versus the combination of the two, he might be more docile with some mm -hmm. of the lack of communication issues that go along with autism or the kind of disinterest in social contact. Yes, yes. Um, the kids who have co-occurring ADHD tend to be more disruptive. Uh, they, you know, they tend to create more of a problem in the classroom, more of a problem at home. So, what, what have you found? I mean, what? Tell us a little bit about the research you're involved with right now, and what are the kinds of things you found? Sure. Uh, as a psychologist, I'm very interested in behavioral treatments, and so um, how to improve autism symptoms, how to improve functioning without the use of medication, and uh, what we have found um, in our research over the past 10 to 12 years is that a core treatment of autism. It is a social skills training group, and so kids uh, are taught how to communicate, how to converse, how to socially problem how solve. How to relate to other people. How to relate to other people. Um, that tends to work well for children with autism. It tends to work less well if the child has co-occurring ADHD, and so if it's only autism, social skills groups typically are effective. If the child also has ADHD, our hypothesis is it isn't a skill deficit, it's a performance deficit. And so we can teach the kid the skill, but when he goes out there in the real world and tries to use it, the impulsivity, et cetera, interferes, and he knows what to do, he just has trouble doing what he knows. So what kinds of, I mean, how has the research led to differences in treatment? For example, when you mention ADHD, the classic treatment that I know of has often been medication of some sure. kind. Do we use those kinds of medications for ADHD with children who have both conditions? Yes, absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, and the answer is yes. Uh, so, for example, the most commonly used medication for ADHD is use of a stimulant. That's also the most commonly used medication for children with autism who have ADHD. Give me an stimulant. example. I think most people may know these, but when you so say a example, stimulant. For example, Ritalin, Adderall, Concerta, uh, those, are, those are the the trade names, and so those are the stimulants that are used, and they're also used in ADHD and autism. Um, but the research is finding that kids with autism tend to respond less favorably to those. For example, about 80% of kids with ADHD who do not have autism will respond positively to stimulant. That number in ADHD and autism is 50%. Okay, so, so if you have the co-occurring situation of autism and the ADHD, the medication is not as, um, doesn't have as great an impact. Or is effective? I would say it works, uh, but it works in less of the population than it does in ADHD. So what then do you do? Sure. I mean, what basically, if the medication is less effective, and you said some of the social, um, behavioral kinds of constructs in terms of trying to retrain the way the child relates to the world, what do you do when that both those things occur? Yep. Uh, then you begin to work more aggressively with the parents. And you want the parents to be an extension then of the treatment provider, teaching the parent how to manage the disruptive behavior at home, teaching the parent how to collaborate with the school around treatment. Well, it sounds like, what are you immediately, with a little bit of time we have left, what new research or what are you engaged in right now and where is the direction going for sure. this? Sure. Our direction with research is continuing on the, the social skills, um, but our research is now working on trying to train the teachers on how best to manage these social skills, how to encourage socially appropriate behaviors in the classroom. And so we're really moving away from a clinic-based model of t treating the child with autism in a clinic and really going to where he or she spends eight hours a day and trying to train those adults. 
almost affecting the whole ent environment of the child, both Correct. at home and in the school, to try to reshape the environment to help support and perhaps retrain the child. Correct. Well, it sounds like very important and, and interesting research. Thanks so much for coming in and sharing it with sure. us. Pleasure. My guest has been Dr. Kevin Anschel. He's Associate Professor of Psychology at Syracuse University and Adjunct Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Pennsylvania poet Barbara Crooker takes a lighthearted look at oral surgery, usually a topic none of us likes thinking about, but her poem makes us laugh. After oral surgery, I start to forget how much I like to eat, baguettes shattering into splinters, Salted popcorn, its kernels lethal now. Oatmeal cookies, crumbs that infiltrate the gaping crater. Now I'm in the land of bland, living on creamed soups, mashed potatoes, coddled eggs. Anything with cayenne, Tabasco, jalapenos would electrify these throbbing open sockets. Even though I'm almost a vegetarian, I start to dream about steak, charbroiled, sputtering and hissing, blood pooling on the plate. I might as well imagine eating my pillow. Night seems endless, stomach mumbling, talking out loud. I envy those models and commercials whose encounters with food border on the pornographic. They never chew or swallow, but oh, what ecstasies of foreplay. Meanwhile, my poor gums thrum with pain. What I wouldn't give for one brief tryst with a hot slice of buttered toast. For joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we learn about endovascular neuroradiology and its essential role in stroke care, plus the health issues affecting low-wage workers, and some new hope for a cure for Alzheimer's with the Brain Health Registry. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it by going to iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.